but also there is so much grace and mercy that just pours out of you because you love us so so desperately Jesus thank you for coming down out of heaven becoming a man showing us the way and then dying on that cross so that we might be forgiven so that our sins might be washed away but maybe even more importantly than that God I know there's maybe no, nothing more important than that but today I just want to thank you that you make us your children and by being your children we are welcomed into your family and all of the power and all of the strength and all of the hope that comes with that that this is not our eternal dwelling place, that this is not our home. We are just sojourners until the day we come and we join your family where you redeem us, where you renew us, where you glorify us. And in particular today, God, we are, where we are unified, not only with, with you, Jesus, but with our, our lost family and friends. I can't wait to see my mom and my dad and my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents. And I know Amanda and Aaron can't wait for the day where they get to see Vivian in her glorified body and they get to spend time with their daughter and know Know what you already know, Jesus, who she truly is in you. And so until that day comes, God, I pray that today in particular that you would give Amanda and Aaron and Gwen and Joran and Phoenix and the rest of the family comfort. That you give them a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that is supernatural, that doesn't even make sense in a time like this. God, more than anything, I don't have the right words or the right prayers. God, I pray you would just be God and do what you do for your children. Do what you do for those that you adore. Because God, it's not like you don't understand the pain of this. Your own son hanging on the cross as you had to pour out all the things you hate the most on him so that we could be set free. You know the pain of this, God. So I pray from a God who understands that you would show them your understanding. You would help them to walk in the truth that you weep with them and that you love them and that you're with them and that you'll never abandon them and know, even though they might under, not understand why now that someday we will. All will make sense. And all pain, all suffering, all death will be wiped away. And we won't have to deal with this anymore. God, I thank you for this church body that has been so faithful to them. God, I thank you that we've actually got to see what the church is supposed to be this last week, where we, yes, we rejoice together, but you call us to weep together. And we have weeped. We have wept. We have cried. But God, I thank you for the hope that can never be taken away from us in you. I pray that hope would reign true today in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Um, today, as Pastor JT mentioned, we're going to read from Exodus. So if you have your Bibles handy, turn to chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she held him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bottomen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. 
And she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew, from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Awesome. Thank you, Danielle. That's something that we'll probably start doing a little bit more as we go through this series, because this is not like um, Paul's epistles or letter, letters to church. This is a story, right? The whole thing is, is written in story form. And so there'll be times where we're going to read much bigger passages of Scripture than you're typically used to. And I want us to see, before we even start breaking down the passage and, and seeing, I want you to see the story. I want you to see where we're going. Um, and so more and more we'll do that as we, as we walk through this. So thank you, Danielle, for reading that for us. You, you were just amazing. <laughs> Um, and so here's the deal. Before we actually jump into breaking down the passage, um, man, this week of all weeks, um, and too often lately, I have felt kind of small. You know what I mean by that? Right? Again, th- this week above all weeks, I've, I've felt, I don't know if you felt this at all in the last few months, but I felt, especially this week, that I'm not enough, that I can't control things. As a pastor and as a man, I want to fix things. And then the, there's a lot of times that I can't, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, I can't fix it. As we prayed before, there's nothing I can say, no prayer I can, perfect prayer I can give. There's, there's no perfect Bible verse to make a couple who's lost a child feel better. There's just a helpless feeling that, that comes with that, right? So I've just felt kind of small because it's, it's just not okay. That's not something that can be fixed. And that comes in the context of the last few months where when it comes to like COVID and not just COVID and the fear that comes with that and all, but all, all the different opinions and all the different things and all the overwhelming just sense of just dread for lots of different reasons that comes with COVID, like the racial tension that's and the racial upheaval that's in going on in our country and not knowing how we engage in that, what we should do about that, wanting to be a part of bringing healing process, but like feeling like those things aren't working or not making any difference and not knowing really what to do. And then just, I'm so glad I'm off social media now. I recommend it, right? I'm not saying social media is bad, but man, I feel better after getting off social media. But even avoiding social media, just just a bitter, just a bitter and hateful election cycle, right? I don't care. I do care what side you're on on some of these issues, right? But like, and again, this is not a political statement. Just like even friends and family seemingly almost becoming enemies now. Instead of just debating different sides, like almost becoming enemies, just angry and bitter. It's just, it feels like it's just too much, and I can't do anything about it. And none of us can do anything about it. Someone like me or someone like you, just, it's just too much. It's too much to overcome. It's too much to fix. It's too much to know what to do. And it makes me feel small. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way. But if you're here last week, Brandon said something that really stuck with me. And he basically said something along these lines. That sometimes realizing that we are small helps us to see that we are in desperately need of something that is not small. That 
when we feel small and we embrace that who we, we are, that we finally realize that there is a power that is for us, that there's a power that is within us, is that when we feel small and when we realize we're small and that we serve a big God, that's where we really find our strength. As, as Paul says, it's in our weakness that we find our strength. And there's nothing wrong with being small people relying on a very big God. Well, today, in Exodus 2, we're going to hear the stories of some very small people. And when I say small, I just mean people that have no real control, that, that don't really have any power whatsoever. And we're going to see these small per- people come overcome virtually impossible odds to see incredible things happen. And hopefully what I want us all to see, and I hope you will see, is that, uh, that even though in the overall scheme of the world where we have no real power, we have no real control, where we are small, that it's okay because in Scripture it is through small people that God does the most miraculous things over and over again. God does his most miraculous work to spread his glory and bring deliverance and redemption almost always through small people, people just like you and me. And so if you haven't been with us, if it's your first week back in a while, you haven't been with us, we're walking through the book of Exodus. And last week we saw what happened to the people of Israel. Right, if, you're, if you haven't been with us, the people of Israel, Jacob's family, they, they came to Egypt. And when they came to Egypt, there was only about 70 of them, right? There's just a really big family. Like we got Jacob, the great grandson, or the grandson of Abraham, and all of his 12, his, the 12 brothers that came, that became the tribes of Israel. And they all came, and there's only 70, 70 of them. But now we're a few hundred years later, and over those few hundred years, they've turned into this huge people group, just like God promised. God promised Abraham right, that they'd be a huge people group. And one of the themes of Exodus is God's covenant faithfulness, that he, he's faithful to the covenants, to the promises that he made. And now they've become this huge people group, and that's awesome. Like, they're seeing God work, but here's the problem. They've gotten so big that Egypt, and in particular Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has gotten really nervous. There's so many of them now, and he's afraid that they're going to rebel against him, that they're going to try to take control of power. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. I think it's important to know that like the, the, the Israelites weren't enslavement in Egypt this entire time, the entire 400 years, right? They had a huge time of blessing. They came in at a time of blessing, but that blessing led to, to what God said would happen. They'd be fruitful and multiply, and they have, and now there's this huge people group, and the Egyptians are kind of freaking out that something bad's going to happen. So he enslaves, he enslaves them to try to stop their growth to stop them from kind of taking over Egypt by, the, by their numbers. Did it work? No, because this is a part of God's plan, right? It didn't work. He, enslavement didn't keep, they actually started to grow all the more. So do you remember what Pharaoh's next step was? As if enslaving people, if slavery wasn't evil enough, he talks to the Hebrew midwives and he says, I want you to kill all of the sons. Any son's son that is born, I want you to kill them. Now listen, these midwives probably had a lot of fear of Pharaoh. He's arguably the most powerful person in the world during this time. But these midwives had more faith in God than they did fear of Pharaoh. And so they defied the order. And they made excuses. And it didn't work. The Israelites grew even more. So then Pharaoh, if you remember from last week, he just kind of cuts off all restraints. Because I think he could have told the midwives kind of in secrecy and the Egyptian people don't really know that he's literally killing babies. Right? But he goes to the Hebrew midwives and, 
and that doesn't work. And so he just kind of casts off all restraints, and he basically just tells Egypt as a whole, listen, if you see a son of the Hebrews, if you see a baby boy of the Hebrews, I want you to cast them into the Nile. I want you to be a part of killing all of the sons of Israel. Now, this week of all weeks, I want us to feel the weight of that command a little bit. Because I think, particularly when we read the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, I mean, this 4,000 years ago maybe? I think we hear ancient stories like this and we're just like, oh yeah, that's, that's bad. But hear me, these were real mothers and fathers. Right? These were real people. Can you imagine the fear, the desperation, the suffering and the pain that would have come when this command came down and all of Egypt was arrayed against them? A thing that, as we talked about earlier, if this starts happening, it's a thing that no prayers can make better. Right? We pray and we believe God can make better. God can bring peace and comfort and hope. But there's not a prayer. There's not wise words. There's, not, there's nothing in a moment that's going to make this better if some, this happens to, to your, your child. And so it's not just that this order came down to kill all of the sons that are born. And all of Egypt, listen, the Egyptian army, all of the Egyptian people arrayed against them. It's that this came with three unstoppable forces that we've already mentioned. Right? This order came with the power of Pharaoh behind it. Like, listen, the people of Egypt looked at Pharaoh as a god. Right? So the so-called god king, the, arguably the most powerful king, most powerful Pharaoh in the entire world, has arrayed everything against them. He's an unstoppable force. What, what he says is law. You can't stop Pharaoh. He is in command of all of Egypt. Not only is he an unstoppable force, but all of Egypt, again, arguably the most powerful culture in the world, the most powerful army in the world, and all of its people are arrayed against this people group who are enslaved that have no real power other than their numbers. There's two unstoppable forces, and then the third unstoppable force arrayed against these people, the Nile itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but the Nile is the second largest river in the world. You know how long it is? 4,258 miles. Try to picture that for a second. From Los Angeles to New York is only 2,800 miles. That's how long the Nile is. In the Nile, 6 million pounds of water pass by every second. This is a raging, roaring, massive river. It's a powerful force of nature. And not only that, there's all kinds of creatures and animals that are in this Nile that are dangerous. And so Pharaoh is leveraging the Nile to bring death. From, here, from this point forward, for the sons of Israel, the Nile equates to death. And that's what he's doing on purpose. At this time in the ancient world, people are really afraid of water. People sell out on water and they disappear. Right? You'll, you'll see this theme throughout Scripture that, that water is, uh, is a terrifying thing. And so he's leveraging the Nile, just throw those babies into the Nile because anyone that gets thrown out in the middle of the Nile unprepared is done. It's over. So Pharaoh, all of Egypt itself and even the Nile are arrayed against the people of Israel who have no real power. They're slaves. Three unstoppable forces. But hear me. What does God initially use to thwart all that power? Some faithful midwives. Some midwives thwart all of that power arrayed against them. God using people so small to overcome the impossible. It's 
If you step back and think about that for a second, that's amazing. Just some midwives against all the power of Egypt, but it worked. And so what we're going to see today is God's not showing us that so often he displays his power, his glory. He does the amazing through people who at first seem powerless, who seem to have no control, who seem small, but through them he does miraculous things. It's not just the midwives. Keep, read with me again in Exodus 2 verse 1. Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay, so, at first glance, maybe it's not like this for everyone, but at first glance, I'm guessing that verse 1 is kind of a mostly throwaway verse for you. Right? These are Moses' parents. Okay. And then we're done with it, right? I want, you to, I want you to see this, how much this is God's story and not our story. Do you know that the, these are Moses' parents? Like, they give birth to one of the most important figures in our entire faith, and they don't even give their names. They get one verse. We find out their names later than Exodus, but he doesn't spend any time on this because this is not a story really about Moses at all. It's about what God is doing through his, his people. But I think this is a throwaway verse for most of us. But there's some really important words that are found in verse 1 that are pointing to some really great things. Anybody see what they are? You didn't, you didn't spend time to look at it for a second? We're going to talk about this much more later in the series, but, um, but what family, what tribe did Moses' parents come from? Levi, right? The family of Levi, right? And so as I mentioned before, like Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And so all of Jacob's sons, whose Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, all of Jacob, Israel's sons, his 12 sons, end up becoming the tribes of Israel. And that's a big deal, right? We got Judah and Gad and Asher and all the other 12, right? And so Levi is one of those 12 tribes. And so we call it a tribe now because 400 years later, it is a huge people group. Thousands, tens of thousands of people fall in the family or the tribe of Levi now. And so that's important, but it's not just that, it's just not, not just that that's important. In the future, towards the end of Exodus, God's going to start giving us his law. And in God's law, what ordained people come from the family line of Levi, from the tribe of Levi? The priests, right? And the priests' main role, they're not here yet, right? They're going to be here down the road in decades from now, right? But the, the priests' main role was to be a mediator between God and men. One of our other main themes of this of this book is God's presence, God's presence coming among his people. And it's the priest's job to be the religious leaders that are kind of the go-between between between God and men, right? They're this huge deal later that they're the arbiters of God's presence among the people of God. This is God being faithful to his promises. But hear me, what was, if you know the story of Exodus, we'll get there, but what was really Moses' main role? To be a mediator between God and man. That's all Moses really did. God said, do this, go tell the people this, go do this action, and Moses was just faithful, right? He was the one that would go before God's presence and then share what God was doing with the rest of the people. He was a mediator between God and man, right? And so we can see God's sovereign hand already working, can't we? Because later, Moses is going to make his brother Aaron the head of the Levitical priests, Right, so we already see God's hand, sovereign hand working even before the birth of Moses to align everything so that Moses will end up being the example of what it means to be a mediator between God and man. All the priests that come after this will follow Moses' example. 
So even from the very beginning, we see God laying the groundwork, his sovereign plan, even with the birth of Moses, of how he's going to bring his presence among his people and how he's going to be faithful to all the covenants that he's promised to his people. All these little things that you can see is you're just seeing God all through Genesis and all through Exodus laying out a plan. And it's all foreshadowing who? The great high priest who scripture says is now sitting at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding, is mediating for us between God and man for he is the God man. All of this is one story. God constantly just laying out the bricks showing us how he's been working since the very beginning to bring us into his family. But that's not where the foreshadowing, that's not where the faithfulness ends. Keep reading in. Well, let's start in verse 2 again, but this time let's read through verse 4. Exodus 2, verse 2. The woman, Moses' mother, conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, again, I just want us to pause for a second. Can we just pause for a second and let the desperation of this moment set in? Can you imagine the desperation this took? Again, I've said this quite a few times already through Genesis and Exodus. We tell kind of fun interesting stories like in Sunday school and stuff about stuff like this. We make it all pretty and Moses is going down to the river. The Prince of Egypt makes it a little bit more. The movie makes it a little bit more scary, right? But that's not what this story is really about. This story is about a mother and about her desperation to do anything she could possibly do to save the life of her son who has got three unstoppable forces arrayed against him and she has no idea how he's going to make it. I can't imagine the terror and the joy of when Moses was born. Can you? You wait for your baby to be born. You wait all that time. The baby finally comes into the world. And can you imagine that moment when they saw, there, there was no machines back then, right? That moment when they saw it's a boy, the joy, and at the same time, the terror they must have felt. I can't even wrap my mind around that, that moment, those conflicting emotions. And so I, I don't know, from Scripture, we don't, we don't know for sure what I'm about to say is kind of conjecture, but I'm, I'm pretty confident, I can say with a lot of confidence that the Israelites weren't willing to give up their sons. Is that fair? Is that, a, is, is that, a, is that fair? So I'm assuming there was a network of people all working together to protect these moms, to protect these families, to protect these baby boys, warning them when the Egyptians were coming, warning them when the army was coming, warning them so that they could protect their sons to the best of their ability. And so it says for three months, she was able to hide him. Well, you know how she was able to do that, right? Like, what do babies do the first three months? They sleep, they eat, and they poop, and that's it. But about two, two or three months in, what starts happening? What do they start doing a whole lot more of? Crying. They get loud. And at that point, it, it seems as if, after those first few months, Moses' mother knows that she can't keep him hidden any longer. They are going to find him. He's crying a lot. And she knows at that point, like, it's, I've got to do something. And so, stop thinking about, like, this, this big, this big Moses' mother. This is just a mother that had to make a desperate decision. Think about how desperate this was. And the thing that Pharaoh means for death, 
she has to take her baby boy and place him in that river, that river of death. Praying and hoping, his faith in God that this thing is going to work out, that God's going to take care of him because she's got nothing else. So she puts him in that basket, puts him in that river of death and sends him down, just praying and hoping. Here's the thing, do you, do you know that Hebrew word for basket? If you're unfamiliar, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Hebrew. And there's a Hebrew word for basket. It's the word teba. It's This word teba is only used in one other passage in all of Scripture. Anybody in a biblical scholar, scholar right here actually know where that is? I didn't. Genesis 6 through 9. And do you know what it's translated as in Genesis 6 through 9? Ark. The word basket is used again and again in the Old Testament. But the only time that this word is used to describe basket is ark. Because there was another time when there was an insurmountable power, the flood that was unleashed to bring sure death. That was what it was for, to bring judgment and sure death. Yet God provided an ark to protect his chosen faithful, to protect his few, to protect his sons. And I don't think it's an accident, because remember, Moses wrote this later. I don't think it's an accident that Moses chose this word to describe what God did through his mother in this moment. His mother placed her baby boy in an ark and she prayed that it would protect him from sure death, just like our ancient ancestors, just like her ancient ancestors once were in an ark to try to avoid sure death by God's protection. A small, powerless woman bravely trusting that God would deliver her son to an ark. An ark that would ultimately bring deliverance and redemption to an entire people group and change the course of the world. It's pretty amazing if you think about that. This, this word choice here was not an accident. Moses saw exactly what God was doing. God using something small and powerless to do amazing things because this shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have survived this. But Moses' mother wasn't the last in a line of women other than the midwives and Moses' mother that helped bring God's sovereign plan of deliverance and redemption to fruition. There's still that, the bravery of that little girl, right? We don't know how old Moses' sister was as she followed him along that riverbank, but we can take an educated guess and say she was probably 8 to 12. The reason I say that is that she was a slave by this point, right? So she's a 13, 14, 15-year-old out wandering around the Nile during the day. Someone's going to call her out for that. Someone's going to notice what she's doing because she's supposed to be working, right? They, they work them. If you, if you know the story of the Exodus, we're going to get to it. They work them to the bone. They work them as much as they possibly could so they wouldn't thrive, right? So this little girl would, would, have, to not, would have to be younger, otherwise somebody would have noticed. But also, if she was three or four or five, Right? A little girl walking along the Nile, right? the dangerous Nile, somebody would have noticed that too. Why is a four-year-old girl, why is a five-year-old girl walking along the Nile by herself? So we don't know for sure, but we can guess Moses' sister, who we later find out is named Miriam, is probably in that 8 to 12 range because that's an old enough range where she could be by the Nile and people might not take notice. I just want to ask again, let's, let's bring this into the real world. Can you imagine the bravery this must have taken? She was with her parents as they cried and they wept and they didn't know what to do. She probably saw her mother bawling, put Moses into that river, not knowing what was going to happen, believing that God would take care of him, right? And so she's following along, watching her brother because she's just not going to let it go. 
I don't know this, but I, man, I almost just imagine Miriam was like, hey, you stay away from him. We just got to trust God with this. But she wouldn't stay away. She had to see what was going to happen to her little brother. The, the bravery this must have taken, not only risking her own life, but maybe risking the life of her family because she just couldn't let it go. She just, she just couldn't watch her brother float away by himself. It's kind of a beautiful thing. That's not where her bravery ends. I don't think this is the bravest thing that she did. We don't know if this was Pharaoh's only daughter. People, they debate. Pharaoh probably had tons of, tons of children, tons of daughters. We have no, I, who knows? And we don't know how much influence that she had. But what we do know is when her women found this baby and she saw this Hebrew child, she knew it was a Hebrew right away for whatever reason. She had pity on him. She showed mercy for this baby. Her heart broke for him, and she openly defied the order of her father. That took bravery, too. Openly defying the order of her father that's gone out all across Egypt. And so they find the baby among the reeds. They pull him out from certain death that was awaiting him. And through this ark, through out of the water, she is a part of God bringing him salvation. This was salvation for Moses out of certain death. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine this was the outcome that Moses' family was looking for, right? If somebody would have said beforehand, yeah, Moses is going to float down the, for the river, river for a while, but Pharaoh's daughter is going to find him, I bet they would have freaked out because this, somebody from Pharaoh's own family finding Moses, they had to believe this would mean certain death for their kid. Of course it would, but somehow it doesn't. And this is where Miriam's real bravery comes in. Do you know what she, do you, do you remember what she did in the story next? She walks up to Pharaoh's daughter. I cannot imagine that slaves are used to walking up to Pharaoh's family and start talking. Right? We know how things worked in the ancient world. How you, I, I can't imagine anyone's ever done this. I'm guessing people have done this before and been killed for it. She walks up to Pharaoh's daughter and starts talking to her. This girl with monumental bravery walks up and says, Hey, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse that child? And what does Pharaoh's daughter say? Yeah, actually I do. And who does she go and get? Her own mom. That's just crazy. It's just crazy this little girl did that. Like, the you know what on this girl. Am I, I can't say that. But like, th this girl walking up to Pharaoh's daughter and then saying, hey, I've got a woman, and then going getting her mom. That is crazy. But her faith pays off. And what happens? Pharaoh's daughter's like, yeah, go get me a Hebrew woman. They go get Moses' mom. She comes back. And then she pays Moses' mom to nurse him herself. That's amazing. And so she gets her son back. Salvation for her baby boy. She literally gets him back for a while. In the ancient world, it was pretty, pretty common for women to nurse their children for three or four years. So this means she probably got her son back for the next three or four years, brought back from the brink of certain death. You can imagine the joy. But obviously, that's not where the story ends, and it's not all joy, right? This is amazing, but it doesn't mean it was easy from this point. Um, read verse 10 again. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So obviously when he got old enough, they had to take him back. But they had to take him back to Pharaoh's daughter so she could raise him as, his, as her adopted son. Again, I can't imagine. This is just the swings of the emotions of the story, right? I can't imagine how hard that was. 
man, but it must, have, it must have brought her some peace. It must have brought their family some peace to know that Moses' destiny went from certain death to them getting to spend three or four years with him. That she got to nurse him himself. She got to watch him grow. When there had to be some peace there knowing that, that he's not going to die, he's going to live. And not only is he going to live, but he's going to be protected in a way that they probably won't be protected. He's going to be taken care of. He's going to have every advantage because of the house he's being raised in. That had to bring some peace amidst all the pain and the desperation and the hurt. But here's the thing. I don't, I'm about to go conjecture again, right? So this is me kind of stepping away from the Bible. I don't know this for sure. But um, I, don't think, I don't think Moses lost relationship with his family. He may have, but I don't think he, lo- he fully lost that connection because we see later in the story of Exodus that he's reunited with his brother and it doesn't look like it's this big, re- re- the, this big reunion when they didn't know, where they didn't know each other, right? Like he's brought back to his brother Aaron, he's brought back to his sister Miriam and Aaron, Aaron and Miriam end up becoming leaders in what Moses is doing for the Lord, right? So it seems from context, it seems that he didn't completely lose relationship with his family. He knew who they, who they are and he got re- reunited with them fully later. So we see this bravery of this little girl bring their son back to him for a time. And not only for a time, we see how their relationship later ends up changing all of Israel. And then finally we get to the baby's actual name. Of course we know what the name is because we, we read it. Danielle did such a great job of reading us the whole time. And it's Exodus. I think you probably know who the baby is at this point. But in the ancient world, again, they, sometimes they would wait a few years to name their children. Did you know that? Because in the ancient world, just names were such a huge deal. We just give kids names a lot of times. Now, because maybe because their name's something, or they come from family, or we just like the way they sound. But in the ancient world, it was a big deal. Your name carried a lot of weight. And so sometimes they'd wait a few years to see what their personality was like, or what they had been through, or what the story of this child was. And you see that play out here. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. Because the Hebrew name... Moses means to, to draw out, and she drew him out of the water. But she might have picked it for another reason. Moses in Egyptian sounds remarkably like the word son. They sound remarkably similar. And so she, she may have wanted to give him a Hebrew name, because he is a Hebrew, but a Hebrew name that could also pass as an Egyptian name. So in the end, his name really kind of means the son that was drawn out. The son that was drawn out of certain death into life. A son that will, bring, that will end up bringing people out of certain death in the kingdom of Egypt into the kingdom of God. And that's what this series is about. How through Moses and all of these other people, God delivers them from the kingdom of Egypt, from the kingdom of man, into the kingdom of God. And you see that just in the significance of Moses' own name. But you also see what that's foreshadowing, that what that's pointing to? It's this beautiful picture of what baptism is and what baptism rep- represents for us to this day. That through the water, we are drawn out of spiritual death, right? That God has wrath for our sin, that God punishes sin, and we have nothing waiting for us but death, and we are in spiritual death, but we are delivered through the water, through baptism as an example of how, how we are delivered into a new life in Jesus Christ. We are drawn out of death as sons into life in Christ. Christ, the one that Hebrews 3 literally calls the better Moses, the better son, the true redeemer, the true deliverer that Moses was only pointing to and foreshadowing. God is once again hinting towards us of the ultimate redemption that is going to come through his son. 
and it's the theme that we've seen run all the way through the Old Testament already. The son promised in Genesis, the son promised to Abraham, and now the son through the ark delivered out of the water that will bring deliverance to his people is pointing forward to the son who will be the true redeemer. It's amazing to watch God's story play out through scripture if you dive in and you really see what's going on here. What Pharaoh meant for death, the Nile, God is going to use to bring new life. But what that really points to is what our enemy meant for death, the cross of Jesus Christ. And he meant for death is going to bring new life to all who simply believe in faith that he is Lord and King. This story, at least the beginning of the story, is about going from death to life, and it's all pointing to our deliverer in Jesus. You know what maybe my favorite part of the story is, of this, this section of the story? That the three unstoppable forces, the power of the God King, Pharaoh, all of the Egyptian might, and the overwhelming force of nature, the Nile, were all thwarted by the faith of some midwives, by the desperation of a mother, and by the courage of a little girl who just could not let go of her baby brother. One of the greatest stories that has ever been told started not with Moses, but with a few small people that had faith that their, their God was big and were used in incredible ways to accomplish the impossible. What they accomplished is impossible, yet God did this through small people. What Pharaoh meant for death and destruction, God used to bring redemption and deliverance to an entire people to spread his glory to the entire world. And by the way, because this happened, that's even why we're sitting here today, because God's glory spread through the world, God laying out his plan so that even we could sit in here and worship today. And it all started with a few small people. That's where this story really starts. You know what? In the end, I might be small. And you might be small. And we might not have any real power by the world's standards. And we may have, and we do have, an enemy that is impossibly huge, impossibly more powerful than us. A, an enemy that we have no hope against on our own, that wants to destroy us. But you know what? Our God is huge. Our God is huge. And God does amazing things to accomplish his will. And more than often, he does those things to accomplish his will, not through powerful people, but through small people just like you and just like me. Like midwives, who faithfully do their jobs through mothers desperate to protect their children and sisters courageously looking out for their little brothers, meaning God works through everyday people to do amazing things. That's how he works because it displays his glory, not ours. We, church, we might not be people who end up being world movers, right? I think we... My age and younger, we grew up in this generation where they told us that we were going to change the world, right? And if we're not literally changing the world, then we've somehow failed, right? Then, then we somehow are not good enough if we don't see like these amazing world-changing things happening around us. So we might not be world changers. We might not literally change the world. But what if together, together, we could be a small but incredibly important part of changing our workplaces, <clears throat> changing our families, 
being a part of seeing change come to Tom Watkins' neighborhood. Changes in our city. Changes even in our nation. Listen, changes even throughout the world as we go make disciples of all nations. We're not all going to be Moses. Listen, let's be honest. None of us are going to be Moses. None of us are going to have names that are remembered forever. But Moses never would have been there without the faith, without the desperation, and without the courage of other people. He's standing on the shoulders of small people. That's how Moses got there through a big God. So here, here and then, here's my call to you. Here's what I want us to do as we go through the rest of the book of Exodus, that this is not just a story. I want us to be faithful to the call that God has given us, church, that we would be faithful. I want us to be desperate to see people go from death to life, to not give up on the lost, to not give up on evangelism, to not give up on seeing people saved, redeemed, and brought into the kingdom of God, to be desperate for that, the same way Moses' mother was desperate for him and that church, that we would be courageous, that we would be courageous to go out and make disciples and tell people about Jesus and set aside our time and give our lives to the thing that's really important, that we'd be faithful and desperate and courageous to be the people of God. You know why? Because God uses small people like us to spread his gospel and to spread his glory to the world. So be faithful, church. Be desperate, church. And be courageous, church. And let's see what God can do with this little church full of small people. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, once again, I'm just blown away by your word that when we take time to see who you are and what you've done, we get to see just how faithful you truly are. God, I think all of us, me included, we get caught up in our day-to-day life, the things that we want right now, the things that we think we need right now, and we fail to see the big picture of what you're doing to save, to redeem, to renew, to restore So God, I pray today that you would just give us a longing. A longing to be a part of that story. You've invited us to be swept up in it. And to have a part to play, a part that matters. And I thank you for the example of these faithful women just in this little part of the story this week that without them, none of these things could have happened. But because of their faithfulness, their desperation, and their courage, You change the world. God, help us to see the places where you want us to step out for our faith. God, help us to long for that. God, I, I know that almost none of us are desperate to see the lost saved. Could you make us desperate? God, we know that you're a helper. Could you help us? God, it feels so strange that we even have to ask you for help for something that we should already be, but God, it's just, it, you know, you know us, you know it's hard, you know that, that we try, but it just never seems like enough. So, so God, would you make us desperate? And God, would you give us courage? Courage to be what you've called us to be. Courage to not care so much what people think when, when we talk about you, Jesus, when we tell people your story. We tell people the story of of what you've done in our lives. Help us not to be afraid, but courageous. Step out in faith. 
that our lives have proven over and over that, that we're just not strong enough for this. We're not faithful enough for this. But that's what you do. You change people's hearts and their minds so that they might know you more, love you more, and then go out and tell other people about you. God, help us to be those people. Jesus, we, all, we know that this only comes by your grace and your mercy and what you've done on the cross and because your spirit, Holy Spirit, is within us. So help us to trust in the power that is within us and the power that is for us in you, Jesus. Which in your name we pray. Amen.